0: This week, leaked bill would allow PG&E wildfire recovery bonds. Judge sustains union objections to First Energy Solutions Plan. Bristow debtors get conditional approval of disclosure statement and proposed dip. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high-yield distressed debt and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding, reporter for Reorg in New York,
0: and I'm legal analyst Alex Brosman. Later this episode, Mark Fisher, Mark Gardner, and Peter Washkowitz explore the differences between EBITDA and cash flow, and discuss companies using addbacks to boost EBITDA. It's Sunday, August twenty-fifth.
1: A copy of draft legislation that would allow PG and E access to quote wildfire recovery bonds was published in the Sacramento Bee last Wednesday. The draft, which would amend AB 235, a bill introduced by Assemblymember Chad Mays in January, reads, quote, It is the intent of the legislature to enact wildfire recovery bonds as a mechanism that would ensure corporate profits, and not ratepayer dollars, bear the economic burden of compensating victims. Further, the wildfire recovery bonds are the mechanism ensuring that the victims of the 2017 and 2018 wildfires receive timely compensation following agreed-upon settlements of their claims. In the bankruptcy court, Judge Montali last Tuesday entered an order outlining certain discussion points and open items to be addressed at the upcoming status conference on the debtor's estimation procedures motion, including in connection with the debtor's plan timeline. In the order, Judge Montali contemplates first a two-track confirmation process, one focusing on the amount to be included in the contemplated wildfire claims trust to be established under the plan and the other focusing on plan implement- implementation. Pardon me second, briefing on inverse condemnation being complete before Thanksgiving, and third, a, quote, preliminary approval of plan terms to assist in the regulatory process before the California Public Utilities Commission. The next day, Judge Montale issued a, quote, recommendation to the district court for, quote, partial withdrawal of the reference of the Section 502C estimation of unliquidated claims arising from the Northern California wildfires. In issuing this recommendation, Judge Montalli requested that the district court determine certain issues related to claims estimation rather than having the bankruptcy court do so. In a footnote in the recommendation, Judge Montalli says, quote, My decision to permit of trial to proceed in San Francisco Superior Court regarding the Tubbs fire was intended, in part, to provide information to inform the trier of facts as to a critical date point as part of the anticipated estimation process. On Friday, the district court adopted Judge Montale's recommendations in full.
0: At the first Energy Solutions contested confirmation hearing, Judge Alan Kostchik sustained the confirmation objections of various unions, saying that the plan could not be confirmed as drafted. Judge Koscik stated, quote, I'm not denying confirmation of the plan, but the motion to confirm the plan would be adjourned until the debtors resolved the union's concerns over the treatment of collective bargaining agreements, or CBAs, under the plan. The objecting unions argued that the plan is unconfirmable as drafted because the union CBAs tied specific obligations to any successor entity, but the post-reorganization debtor cannot assume the CBA obligations and the debtors have not moved to reject them. Lisa Beckerman of Aiken Gump, counsel to the debtors, countered that the plan clearly states that by the plan effective date, the FES debtors will either 1. Assume revised CBAs if agreement with the unions is reached, or 2. Move to reject the, the CBAs under Section 1113 and 1114 of the Bankruptcy Code. Counsel for the Objecting Unions argued that the debtors cannot defer that decision to the post-confirmation period and that they are using the threat of rejection to attempt to squeeze concessions from the unions regarding CBA terms. The judge ultimately agreed with the unions that Section 365 of the Bankruptcy Code, which governs the treatment of executory contracts, would be violated by the plan's treatment of the CBAs under the circumstances. He said that the issue before the court today was whether he was permitted by law to confirm a plan where a CBA, an executory contract, has neither been assumed nor rejected other than by agreement. The judge said that, The, quote, natural reading of Section 365B2 of the code is that executory contracts have to be assumed or rejected by confirmation. Judge Koshchik said that the plan was, quote, almost confirmable and told the debtors and the unions to discuss a resolution. I expect this issue to be resolved, after which the court will confirm the plan, said Judge Koscik. The court is scheduled to address the remaining issues at a status conference on September 10th.
1: The Bristow debtors obtained conditional approval last Wednesday of their disclosure statement and proposed $150 million dip facility, in addition to insider and non-insider key employee incentive programs, or keeps. The amended DS estimates a recovery for Class 8 unsecured note claims of between 257 and 28.5% under the plan. General unsecured claims in class twelve are now expected to recover between 11.3 and 26.6 percent under the plan. The official committee of unsecured creditors now supports confirmation of the plan, according to the amended DS. Consistent with statements made in the prior DS, the plan is supported by 100 percent of term lenders, 99.3 percent of secured noteholder claims, and 73.6 percent of unsecured noteholder claims. Emmanuel Grillo of Baker Botts, co-counsel to the debtors, apologized for flooding the court with what he called quote, piles of paper that would make Dostoyevsky jealous. But he noted that the debtors have made quote, enormous progress and resolved a number of issues regarding their proposed plan and various related resolutions and settlements with a number of interested parties. On that note, Grillo informed the court that the debtors have reached an understanding with the ad hoc equity group whereby the equity group would not pursue its objections to the DS and dip motions. Rather, the equity group's valuation-centric concerns, quote, which are essentially confirmation objections, said Grillo, would be raised in the context of confirmation. Grillo also noted that the debtors and the equity group would develop an appropriate discovery process if, after further discussions, it appears that valuation is still going to be an issue at confirmation. In connection with the DS motion, the court approved the debtor's proposed confirmation timeline, which would culminate in a confirmation hearing on October 3rd.
0: In Puerto Rico's Title III cases, Judge Laura Taylor Swain last Thursday issued an opinion denying the motion of the Commonwealth government, then-Governor Ricardo Rossello, and Afaf, to dismiss the PROMESA Oversight Board's lawsuit seeking to override Law 29 and 23 related joint resolutions that would reprogram funds for expenditures not included in the Oversight Board's certified budgets for fiscal year 2019. In her ruling, Judge Swain writes that the Oversight Board, in its lawsuit, has stated viable claims under PROMESA and the motion to dismiss the Oversight Board's adversary complaint is denied. The Title III court heard oral argument on the motion to dismiss on August 15th, ultimately taking the matter under advisement. The Law 29 dispute is the latest instance of the Oversight Board and the Commonwealth Government clashing over disparities between the board-certified fiscal plan and Commonwealth legislation. In July, the Court of Appeals for the First Circuit also heard argument in connection with the Commonwealth's appeal of an earlier dispute between then-Governor Ricardo Roseo and the Oversight Board over the breadth and power of the Oversight Board under PROMESA to make binding policy choices for the Commonwealth. The First Circuit panel has not yet issued an opinion on the matter. Separately, Last Wednesday, Governor Wanda Vasquez announced the selection of new Progressive Party Senator Zoe Laboy as her Chief of Staff and PRASA President Eli Diaz as her representative on the Permisa Oversight Board. Vasquez lauded both officials as, quote, "...proven professionals who will, quote, "...work together to guide the government, both administratively and financially." Neither position requires confirmation by the Senate." Diaz said he has resigned his position as PREPA chairman to concentrate on his new duties as the governor's representative to the Oversight Board. He said that PrePA Board Vice President Ralph Rivera, a former head of the Puerto Rico Engineers and Surveyors Association, will serve as chairman until the board members select new officers.
1: Other top red stories last week were a scene of term lenders working with Green Hill. Litigation target Teva's Tangled Structure creates questions, opportunities for bondholders and plaintiffs. Lack of opco guarantees and hook stock could capture additional value for plaintiffs. Finally, and New Coverage, multiplan's legal legislative risk weigh on capital structure. Softness in core businesses, client implementation delays, drive revenue misses.
0: And as always, here's Jim Holloway with The Week Ahead.
2: Good morning, folks. Greetings to those of y'all around to listen, which means, I reckon, that you drew the short straw and are stuck riding the desk while the rest of the folks are loading up their bait buckets with Catawba worms. Well, my friends, the rain falls on the just as well as the unjust, and the good news is you can crank up the Black Sabbath just as loud as you want while the boss is away. And while we're on the subject of rain... If you are a purveyor of opioids and you know who you are, Purdue, well then, the barometer is dropping. Storms are always bigger on the old Comancheria, and on Monday, August 26, there is a bench ruling in Oklahoma related to the multi-state opioid litigation. This one specifically pertains to a $17 billion action against Johnson & Johnson and a subsidiary which is called Janssen Pharmaceuticals. I assume that this will establish what the legal profession calls a precedent." Tuesday, August 27th, the status conference of PG&E, the jewel of West Coast Power Generation, a second day hearing in Jack Cooper Enterprises phi the choppa company there's a plan modification hearing and sable permian their exchange offer expires as we've noted in past episodes this has been extended quite a few times there's also fourth quarter earnings and a call from Lanit. wednesday august 28th combined plan ds hearing for blackhawk and a continued confirmation hearing in ditech a forbearance expiration and approach resources but this one's also been extended Thursday and Friday, there is nothing going on. For all practical purposes, the summer is over, and we are back after the holiday on Monday to the land of what have you done for me lately. Symbolic of which, I guess, we have on the weekend a forbearance expiration in Premier Global, and coupons are due on Sunday from JCPenney and Hornbeck Offshore. And now over to Mark Fisher, who with Mark Gardner, and Peter Washkowitz is going to tell you all about EBITDA adbacks. Thanks for listening and have a good weekend.
3: Uh, so I'm here today with uh, Mark Garner, Distressed Debt Analyst and Peter Washkowitz, head of our uh, Rear Covenants in the U.S. Uh, group. And we're going to talk about um, EBITDA addbacks. It's uh, been a pretty popular topic in the news. We're going to look at it both from a covenant perspective, what it allows companies to do, what they can't do. And then also, of course, from a cash flow perspective, uh, what does relying on what the company says EBITDA is uh, versus what we're calculating over here at Reorg, which uh, we're trying to look at a little bit more of um, cash flow metrics, how they could pay. Uh, their bills when they come due so a company um, this this conversation hopefully you could apply it to any company that you're looking at but the one that we're going to use as an example is one that mark had just initiated on excela technologies a global third-party provider of data aggregation information management and workflow automation services uh, the company as, as mark wrote it is evaluating a non-binding indication of interest uh, from hands-on global management and a private equity firm but the key issue that we want to focus on today is um, EBITDA. Uh, how should you look at EBITDA here? What's the right measure? Uh, what the company says, what Mark has uh, as calculated, um, cash flow, and uh, and anything in between, um, and how they. Um, what uh, what they'll be able to generate in order to deal with their one and a half billion dollars of uh, of debt when it when it comes due. So, um, Mark, um, with that, if you can uh, just give us a little background on, on the situation here. Uh, you know, I described a couple of different forms of EBITDA. Uh, what um, how does that relate to excella What are they defining as EBITDA? What do you think? What are the differences?
4: Right. Uh, so, Excel reported adjusted EBITDA makes adjustments for uh, optimization and restructuring expenses they've incurred. Um, of these restructuring expenses, uh, process transformation expenses contribute the most, uh, which represent continuous reduction in their COGS related to headcount rationalization. So, our uh, REORG calculated EBITDA is unadjusted for these uh, expenses, which have been recurring and gotten larger over time. Uh, Excella also reports uh, another EBITDA, which is their further adjusted EBITDA, and that takes into account combined merger adjustments. Uh, So these combined merger adjustments stem from operating cost reductions related to the implementation of uh, strategic actions and initiatives related to their source HOV and Novatex business combination, uh, while these merger adjustments have fallen since the business combina- combination, uh, they still remain high.
3: Great, and let's put some numbers behind that. Uh, what is um, on an LTM basis? What's unadjusted EBITDA? What's uh, reported um, adjusted EBITDA? And what's uh, this further adjusted EBITDA? It's the first time I've ever heard of that one.
4: Yeah. So, uh, so uh unadjusted EBITDA for their restructuring charges is 194 million. Uh, Excela's adjusted EBITDA is 288 million and Excela's further adjusted EBITDA is uh, 346 million.
3: Wow. So um, you have written here in the report that on an LTM basis, the company uh, burned $65 million of, of free cash flow, and that's actual cash, um, you know, uh, in line with uh, your unadjusted number, in line with what the company reports in terms of operating cash flow, and then um, other adjustments um, that you make, such as CapEx, you um. But if you use their number, you know, obviously that that 90 million to get to the adjusted number and then um, even further, uh, I guess it was another 60 million or so um, to get to their further adjusted. But uh, that obviously is a huge difference uh, because it swings them from from negative to to positive. Um, So let's let's try and dig into, you know, some of that Uh, in terms of restructuring um, what uh, let's you know, let's see if we should give them credit or not. in terms of restructuring, what what was the benefit that the company was supposed to achieve?
4: So uh, initially, Excel management stated during its fourth quarter earnings call that it believed 2018 uh, represented the high watermark in terms of optimization and restructuring expenses. Uh, and they believed those expenses would decline thereafter. Uh, However, as of second quarter and uh, June 30th, on a LTM basis, Excel's optimization and restructuring expenses have increased uh, up 44% from uh,
3: 2018. So um, definitely still rising. Um, Can these restructuring costs be a part of normal operations for the company? Uh, I guess that's sort of what you're um, what you're questioning here right
4: yeah uh, definitely I, I mean I would say uh, based on Excel's historical performance, these restructuring costs seem to be a recurring part of operations um, as it tries to cut costs to try to fit into its capital structure uh, I think the company may have been over optimistic from the onset about how much restructuring expenses would be incurred to achieve synergies. Excel Management has stated that it expects the level of optimization and restructuring expenses related to process transformation to decline uh, toward the back end of 2019 um, as its automation initiatives continue to be executed, but uh, I guess we still have to wait and see.
3: And um, what's 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 leverage under the different um, EBITDAs?
4: So uh, leverage on their reported adjusted EBITDA on a net debt net leverage basis is five times uh unadjusted leverage using reorgs uh ebitda is uh net leverage of seven and a half times
3: and reminder reorgs is the unadjusted um one so for covenant calculations which measure of ebitda is used
4: so uh for covenant calcs uh, because the company does not put a limit on restructuring charges or cost savings or synergies related to its source HOV and Novatex business combination, Accela can use the highest uh, EBITDA of the three, which is its further adjusted EBITDA of uh, 346 million on a LTM basis.
3: Great, and um, as soon as I mentioned Covenants, I see Peter is dying to speak here, so let's bring him into the conversation. Uh, Peter, what does that um, mean in terms of, um, I guess, quantifying, or what is the different... Uh, leverage metrics, what does it allow them to do by using different EBITDAs?
5: Uh, Yeah, so um, hello, first of all. Um, And uh, so it's interesting because um, the credit agreement includes a uh, 5.1 times uh, first lien leverage test. Um, Using Reorg's unadjusted EBITDA, the company would be in breach of the covenant right now. Um, Using their adjusted uh, $288 million figure um, the company would, uh, would be allowed to incur about 52 million of additional first lien debt, um, and then using their further adjusted number, the company can incur about 347 million of additional first lien debt. Now, these are not debt baskets themselves, but it, it kind of shows how much additional flexibility they'll have um, based on you know what, what EBITDA number you're gonna use. And, and actually, it's, it, it, the problem is even compounded more because all of the negative covenant baskets in the credit agreement and their secure notes are based on the greater of a fixed amount and a percent of EBITDA, so you can see that not only is their leverage significantly reduced by using the, you know, the the, the second level adjusted EBITDA number, but capacities in each of the fixed ba- in each of the baskets um, uh, increases uh, given that it's based on. Uh,
3: percent of the Uh Interesting. So it's uh, almost exponential. Um, so let's take a step back here and just talk about the broader topic of, of ad backs. Um, help us understand what are the different types of ad backs that you see allowed for, for different companies. I'm um, sure. So,
5: you know, so the, the first thing to say is that, I mean, these are not new. Um, I, I think you're right that there has been an uh, increased focus on ad backs, but um you know, the fact that these companies can add back kind of cost savings um, is nothing new, but again, it's just coming more to the attention of investors. Um, typically, um, and especially in uh, sponsored owned companies, but it's uh, kind of moving into pretty much any company now, um, the company will have a definition of consolidated EBITDA, or can adjusted EBITDA, which will allow them to add back cost savings, uh, typically for you know acquisitions, dispositions, or just kind of any initiative that they want to pursue. Um, and these cost savings can be added back. Um, you know, it, Sometimes there's a cap, You know, for smaller companies, the cap's probably about 15% to 20%. Um, larger deals, you know, maybe 20 to 25%. And then kind of the aggressive large sponsor deals, rarely are there gonna be um, a cap on these cost savings. Uh, and each one of them has a look forward period, which is essentially, um, these companies can add back cost savings for any actions that are taken, uh, or in most cases are expected to be taken within a certain amount of time. In uh, the smaller deals, it's probably 12 to 18 months. Larger deals, 18 to 24, uh, 18 to 24 months. And the largest deals, is 24 months is standard. We have seen 36 months in a few deals here and there.
3: Great. And, you know, Mark and I were just talking about uh, how. In Excela, uh, when you did look at the different EBITDA, it goes from negative cash flow to positive cash flow. But what's what's interesting, um, you've discovered some companies that you actually go from negative EBITDA to positive EBITDA. Yeah.
5: Well, uh, so this week we uh, we started coverage on WeWork. Now, uh, WeWork is um, it's a complete outlier. So um, it's 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 unbelievably interesting. But this is by no means kind of like a you know market or even kind of a trend. But um, so work uh, you know, they just filed their S1 to go public. Their LTM reported EBITDA is negative $990 million. Um, but they have uh, these two different other concepts of EBITDA. One is called uh, adjusted EBITDA before growth investment, which essentially adds back um, most expenses that are related to kind of, um, as it says, the, the, their growth. Um, so, you know, we, we, we have a chart in our article where we show kind of their expenses, um, then reduced by depreciation and amortization uh, and stock-based compensation for normal adjusted EBITDA. The adjusted EBITDA before growth investments takes it to um, crazy enough from negative 990 million to positive 940 million. Um, and then they have one that's even more aggressive, which we did not calculate, but um, it's called community adjusted EBITDA, which um, has even more ad backs. Um Just to put it into perspective, when they issued their 2025 notes um, last year, um, their adjusted EBITDA before growth investments was about 50 million. The community adjusted EBITDA was 233 million. So um, I cannot imagine what it is now, but this is just kind of representative of, you know, these ad backs taken to such an extreme. Um, again, this is not a trend, but, um, you can see that as time goes by, kind of the definition of EBITDA, first of all, becomes longer in these debt documents, and second of all, you're seeing addbacks for really kind of operational expenses that um, there really is kind of no reason why they're being added back, but they are. Um, you know, take a company like Staples, which is you know a, a relatively benign um, issuer. Yes, they're private equity owned, but in their recent um, dual tranche offering uh, earlier this year. Um, their adjusted EBITDA was about 35% higher than their reported EBITDA because of the cost savings add back.
3: I think you also reference Foresight Energy or? or, um...
5: Yeah, so uh, Foresight Energy is interesting. Um, The company last week or two weeks ago, um, reported earnings and they gave a um, a, a lower forecasted 2019 EBITDA of between, I think 230 and 270 million um, now, if, if they run on the low end of that EBITDA projection, they would be in breach of their maintenance covenant. When the company was asked about that on the earnings call, they said, you know, we, we are confident we can, uh, you know, we will be in compliance. And I, I obviously I don't know for sure, but I'd have to imagine that the reason they are still competent, even though the low end of their EBITDA would put them in breach, is because they have um, unlimited cost savings addbacks in their credit agreement um, it's a shorter 12-month look-forward period. But, again, because it's unlimited add-backs for um, projected cost savings that don't even uh, necessarily have to materialize, um, to the extent, you know, 2019 is ending and the company sees that their EBITDA is coming in at the low end, um, they, can, they can honestly just, you know, decide that they want to, you know, look into some cost savings initiatives for the next year um, and add back what they would expect to, to save uh, from those initiatives to
3: get there, even uh, above whatever they needed to get to. Yeah, that's right. And um, you actually the, the the numbers that you presented was two forty to two seventy was was their estimate for two thousand nineteen, and um, I think you you calculated about two forty five they need to um, to maintain uh, to, to, to be in that um, the covenant. So, uh, yeah, those are the numbers behind it. Um, Peter, uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, This is great, Mark. Uh, Thank you very much, too. Uh, Great discussion, guys. And Alex, back to you. And thank
1: you for listening to another Reorg Weekly Review.
3: As always, find all of our
1: podcasts, webinars, and so on on our site's media page, or find the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. This has been The Week in Reorg, and I'm Connor Skelding.